Welcome to the Freedom from Empty podcast, building strong, effective, resilient leaders and humans. My name is Booth Andrews, and I'm your host. Thank you so much for joining me for this episode. Last time in episode 74, I spoke with Kate Brosnan about the journey she's been on as a registered dietitian who realized that her beliefs and behaviors about food were being passed down to her daughter in an unhealthy way. It turns out that fat phobia is a socially acceptable form of discrimination that is harming us and our children, and that there are much healthier and constructive ways to think and talk about body size. After we recorded this interview, I had the opportunity to use some of the language and perspective that Kate shared with me in a tough conversation with one of my kiddos who happened to be in tears over body shame. And I want you to know that I felt so much more equipped to have this conversation in a supportive way. So if you missed episode 74, I encourage you to go back and check it out. In this episode, my conversation with Kate continues as we challenge some of our commonly held beliefs about the association between weight and health, weight stigma and healthcare, and the truth about weight cycling. We also spend time talking about the dangers of applying hyperperformance behaviors to our attempts to manage our weight. I hope you'll listen in now. What about health and weight? since we've all been taught that, quote, fat people aren't healthy. Body fat and weight are not as linked to health as we have been led to believe. There is a lot of research correlating the two. However, there are lots of other issues at stake. If you're a higher weight person, maybe you are a naturally higher weight person, or maybe over time you have dieted to the point where, you know, the number one side effect of dieting is weight gain. And I'll just pause to let everybody soak that in, that the biggest side effect of dieting is weight gain. So over time, if you have people who chronically diet, they are more, it's about two thirds of people when they lose weight while dieting will then regain that weight plus some. Let's say that you are either naturally in a larger body or wide variety of circumstances, including chronic dieting, have led you to has led your body size to grow over time. Our medical system is very, very fat phobic, and doctors are very, very fat phobic in general. And so, if you know that going to the doctor, you might be going in for strep throat, and you know that you're going to come out with a weight loss prescription, or you have been told that the pain in your knee, they won't consider operating on you until you lose. 40 pounds, you are then less likely to seek medical care. And that is called weight stigma. So you are being stigmatized for your weight. The medical community often assumes that weight is the number one contributor to so many of these other issues that you have going on. Maybe you have arthritis. Maybe your gut pain that people are attributing to your weight, maybe it's advanced cancer. That has happened before. Maybe you're going in for strep throat and it has nothing to do with your weight, but you are less likely to seek medical care. And there have been some studies done that if you apply the the concept of weight stigma, that can explain much of the correlation between being at a higher weight and being more likely to have disease XYZ. 
And I think that's really important to say because these people are often less likely to seek medical care because of that. Because why would you keep going back to a doctor who is stigmatizing? That's really rampant. And so that is a really interesting thing to keep in mind. Aside from the fact that our weight and quote unquote lifestyle disease data, it's not causative. There's only been a relationship that's, that's correlative that's been reported, meaning that they can't determine that weight causes these disease, only that it's correlated with these diseases. But if you are going through your life avoiding doctors, well, maybe you are going to be diagnosed with end stage something. So that is going to mess with the data a little bit. So that's that, and, and weight stigma is a really, really big, that's a, that's a whole separate podcast, but that's just a little taste of how you can start to chip away at this ironclad idea we have that weight is a direct determinant of your health. You cannot determine someone's health by looking at them. Usually when I say that, the first thing that pops into people's minds is, oh, are you telling me that somebody who's, you know, think of when you're watching the news and there's a headline about obesity, think of someone like probably that meets that height and weight. And they say, well, you can't tell me that this person is healthy. Well, I actually don't know. That person might be healthy, but you take somebody who is skinny as a rail, they might drink two cups of coffee, smoke two packs of cigarettes a day and have a package of Twinkies for dinner. Those certainly wouldn't be healthy habits. But again, you would look, maybe they have a really thin body. That's just their natural body size. And so unless you know people's lifestyle, their habits, you can't tell if someone is quote unquote, healthy or not healthy, just by looking at them. And a lot of times that is something that we forget because thin has been pumped into our brains as the ideal for so long. We really can't fathom that somebody who is in a thinner body is in any way, shape, unhealthier than someone who's in a bigger body. And then really to talk about some of the dieting statistics, again, the number one dieting is the number one predictor of weight gain. (laughs) And I'll say it till I'm blue in the face because people go on diets to lose weight. And knowing that the statistics, it depends on what study you look at, but I've read statistics as high as 95 and statistics as low as about 80. But let's say even for argument's sake, it's between 75 and 95% chance that you will regain any weight lost in within five years. And then of those people, about two thirds of those people will regain their weight and more weight. And then over time, then we're taught to believe that this is our failing because we failed to stay on the diet. It was our fault. So we try something harder. Well, now we're starting out at a higher weight and then maybe something new works a little bit better. And when I say works, meaning maybe it induces a little bit of weight loss as we're trying something else, but we're starting at a higher weight, lose some weight. Then again, the most likely outcome is that we are either going to regain that weight or regain it plus some. And this, it's not necessarily the fact that you are at a bigger body at the end, but it is an actual cycle of weight cycling that has been identified as an independent risk factor for things like heart disease and many other lifestyle related diseases that they're still doing a lot of research on. And so I thought that was really fascinating that the actual cycling. So, you know, women talk about losing, oh, I've gained and lost the same 15 pounds for 40 years. That, just that, is an independent risk factor for developing these diseases. So that's just the actual physical weight. You can't necessarily tell someone's health by looking at them. There are lots of other factors that are either related to weight or have nothing to do with weight. Like if you take someone's socioeconomic status, 
they may not have access to they may not have access to the types of foods or the types of safe ways to exercise that many of us do. And so, you know, your zip code, I think, is one of the biggest predictors of, of your life expectancy and so and your health outcomes. And so that also links into body size. It's a really, really nuanced conversation that we could totally deep dive into. It just shows you that it's complex and it sounds messy because it is messy. It's a very complex and nuanced discussion. And it's not so straightforward as if you are at a higher weight, you are less healthy because really it's about your habits. And there's a movement called health at every size. And it doesn't mean that everybody is healthy at every single size. It means you can pursue that weight is not a good indicator of health. And you can pursue healthful habits and health promoting habits at any size and see the benefits regardless of whether or not your weight changes. And I think that's fantastic because if you take someone who may be in a larger body and they're sleeping better and they are working on reducing their stress and a whole host of other things, they're starting to move, whether or not they lose weight they are very likely to see positive health indicators. And we haven't even really touched on how stress and weight are related. They are heavily related. How are those two things correlative? Going way back to the first one we talked about with what is fat phobia, it's dealing with chronic stress, feeling like you are, if you are in a larger body and you are living in this fat phobic world, you are definitely experiencing fat phobia. And that is an, that's a source of stress on its own. You're walking around feeling like your body is wrong. There's something wrong with you. Why can't you be better? That's a source of chronic stress. Then what you do to combat that source, that stress is you go on a diet, which is basically intentional stress on your body. Most people go into some sort of caloric deficit and they start exercising, which is stress. So our bodies are now being asked to operate with less fuel And we are asking them to do more things with the whole, oh, just eat less, move more. That is not so simple because we are actually putting our bodies into stress. That is yet another source of stress. In addition to feeling like we need to do that, that's a source of stress. Actually doing it and getting into the restriction cycle is a source of stress. Then typically our bodies are not meant to withstand that type of restriction for very long. And we usually end up binging, breaking the diet. And then we feel bad that we weren't able to keep it going. And then that produces more stress. And then we try another diet and the whole binge restrict cycle keeps on going. And every time we fail, quote unquote, fail, we just feel worse about ourselves. Like, oh, we couldn't do this. This was supposed to be easy. Someone told me that this was easy or You're quote unquote successful in the beginning, which usually is just a result of, you know, your body is going through some sort of new restriction. And over time, that actually gets harder. Your body gets wiser to what you're doing. So your metabolism will slow down to help keep that weight on because your body thinks that this is all, you think that it's in a famine. It has no idea that it is an intentional famine by you, its owner. And so your body does not know the difference. It is a survival mechanism. The fact that if you go on a diet and you find it very difficult to lose weight, it would have meant that your body was totally killing it in the evolutionary game because you were going to be around to make it through a famine, right? So 
kind of reframing it because we don't live in that world, but most people don't think of it that way. They think of it as a failure and it's actually your body working beautifully. The people that you would think of as classic anorexia, that is actually way, 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 way less common. I love studying the neuroscience of eating disorders, but something in their body is just, is triggered to not work the way it's actually designed to be able to work. And it's fascinating. I can't tell you how many people have said to me over the years, and this would be inpatient or outpatient, but I wish I had anorexia or I wish I had an eating disorder. And I know why they say it because they think they're supposed to be able to lose weight. And they think that people with eating disorders can just lose weight so easily. And it's, it's completely backwards. When your body holds on to weight, it is doing it as a form of survival. Once people know that, it may not make it a lot easier, but it can you can at least start to break through. And so then maybe this isn't my fault, you know, that this isn't working. These are all sources of stress. One of my favorite things uh, to hear about the, the keto diet, I promise I'll link this back in, but it has to do with stress. And it's people talking about how we don't need carbs. And I think this is really, it's prescient because low carb diets are still very de rigueur. They're even more de rigueur than they were, you know, in the 2000s when I was coming up through the ranks. The people talk about how, you know, oh, I don't need carbs. You know, my body will just, will be fine. We don't technically need carbs to survive. And they are right. We actually don't technically need carbs to survive. However, that's basically like driving cross country with your spare tire on. Like we can survive we cannot thrive without carbs and that whole anything to do with fasting or surviving without carbohydrates or without with minimal amount of carbohydrate is a chronic source of stress on your body. And I feel that's important to mention because a caloric deficit and going through fasting or any sort of low carb diet is an immense amount of stress on your, on your, on your body. One of the ways that your body reacts, it will slowly shut down different systems the digestive system is one way to go. So if you're feeling, if you're eating in a really stressed state and you find that you're really bloated and gassy and physically uncomfortable after you eat, that is that at work. That is your gut sensing that we're in a stressful situation. We don't have time to digest food. There's a tiger running after us. And then women's reproductive system. That can often be the first one to go, but those are the top two that are affected. And so if you are missing your period, that is a very big red flag that your body is under a lot of stress. And whether it's stress to do with dieting, stress to do with other forms, stress from other areas of life, um, but it's, it all comes back to stress. And then going on a diet, often it, it can feel to a lot of people like that's a great way to deal with stress, right? Like this is something I can control. Like I can control what I eat. I can control when I wake up and go and go to the gym. I can control how long I'm going to be on the treadmill. I can control how much weight I lift. This is going to be great. And then they actually end up like making that stress cycle worse because they're putting more stress on their body. Wash, rinse, repeat. It's not as successful as they've been led to believe long-term. And then we have the shame spiral and then it just, it continues on. So stress, stress kind of comes in at, in all angles. Yes. And a lot of the talks that I give, I talk about the fact that the prolonged exposure to stress hormones, cortisol and adrenaline, 
will ultimately cause deterioration in every system of the body. It even erodes the myelin sheaths around the neurons. But, you know, to your point, digestive, endocrine, hormonal, immune system, all of those systems ultimately are destroyed over time by the body's own stress response because our stress response was supposed to be temporary. And how many of these people are in bigger bodies because they've been chronic dieters and what's being blamed for the deterioration of their body? Their lack of willpower. Right. Which actually feeds into my next question, which is about your work with high achievers and hyper performers and what you see in the interplay between high performers and struggle with diet, health, food, fat phobia, all the things. I think it's twofold. I think high performers tend to think, and I would definitely let myself into that category. We tend to think we can do anything. And so, and if we're not good at it, we just didn't try hard enough. I think you have that aspect playing into it where if you go on a diet and it maybe works for a little bit it and then it doesn't, and then you're either right back where you started or you gained more weight, that just kind of motivates us to then do it harder next time and look for the next fix. You know, if we were just fasting 12 hours, no, 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 no. We got to fast 14 and then it's, and then it's 16 and then it's 18. And the thing is, we're going to do it. Eventually you're either not going to be able to do it or you may develop a full blown eating disorder or any other number of very, very serious outcomes. And I think in that aspect, the best possible outcome is that you go on a diet. It doesn't work you get right back to where you were. Then over time, because of the risk of this constant weight cycling, the second worst outcome is that you lose weight, you gain it, then you gain more. Then you lose weight, you gain it, then you get more. And then this constant, constant weight cycling, or even just going lose, you know, gaining and losing the same 15 pounds over time. Or you go on a diet and then you find something that quote unquote works for you, but it involves basically strongly disordered eating habits to maintain it, right? Well, high achievers, if you give us a task, we're going to do it. What kind of life is that? You know, so that's kind of the second worst outcome, I would say, specifically for high achievers, because if it quote unquote works, we believe that we're in control of everything. And so if it quote unquote works, we're just going to keep doing our sanity be damned. (laughs) We're just going to keep doing what we need to do to maintain that body weight, maintain that control. And then the worst possible outcome is that it does develop into a full blown eating disorder. I think it's important to note that eating disorders are actually, they are mental illnesses. In the most recent DSM-5 criteria, they have removed some of the weight language from a diagnosis for restrictive eating disorders. And they've also created a subcategory of restrictive eating disorders for people at higher weight. So consider this a PSA. It is possible to have what's known as atypical anorexia, which is a bit of a misnomer because it's actually the most typical form. It used to be known as eating disorder, not otherwise specified at NOS, but now there's an arm called atypical anorexia. And it's for people who basically have the same mental makeup as those with anorexia nervosa, but they're just living in larger bodies. And I think that's really important to notice because atypical anorexia, especially in really driven high functioners, high achievers, I don't want to say it's common, but I want to let people know that that is a thing and you don't have to be emaciated to have a diagnosable eating disorder. 
people who are high functioning and high achieving can get to that point. Anybody can get to that point. But when we're specifically talking about this population, that's something that I would really want this population to know that you don't have to be underweight to have a restrictive eating disorder. I think that's something that has gotten lost over the years. If you have someone who you know, is prone to anxiety, it is a mental health issue as much as anxiety and depression. So I think that's important to notice. And you know, the other way I think it affects high performers and high achievers is that we think we can do it all. And whatever it takes to have that body type that is known as the ideal, we will do. Just like there's pressure to send homemade cupcakes with your child to school instead of a six pack from Kroger, like we can do it all, right? That it kind of falls in the same category that it's dangerous territory because eventually something is going to give and it's probably going to be your stress hormone system and your body that can break down silently without you realizing it. And so I think those are things for high achievers to watch out for. It can happen to anybody, but high achievers, I feel like are more likely to let it go further thinking that I just have to try harder. I have a high work capacity. I can do this. I just need to, I think you and I have talked about this before. I just need to paleo harder. I clearly wasn't doing it well enough. I just have to paleo harder. Now that my child's uh, school starts earlier this year, now that they're in middle school, that means I need to get up at 4.30 to go to the gym instead of at 5.30. And so we are more likely to have that approach to it. And so I feel like things can go off the rails faster. And even if things don't physically go off the rails, because again, our bodies are designed to, to not let us be our own worst enemy. You know, they're designed to fight back. I mean, they're designed to thrive. Even if it doesn't go off the rails, I think that people who are high achievers are more likely to really get involved in that shame spiral if they aren't able to achieve what they think they should be able to achieve. You could go down a million different ways, directions with this conversation about high achievers. Maybe they're working more in a male dominated environment. And maybe they feel that in order to get ahead in the world, maybe they need to look a certain way, dress a certain way. And I don't have an answer for that aside from dismantling the patriarchy, you know, aside from that, which, you know, no small task, just, you know, wake up and do it. That's something that a lot of people, and I would say that high achievers are definitely, they possibly might be more likely to do it than not, are in that kind of environment. And even if I don't have an answer for that, and even if it really stinks that that is, that they're in that situation, at least being aware that this is not, you don't have to do this. This is a form of currency that you don't have to buy into. This is a form of culture that you don't have to buy into. Just because you don't do this doesn't mean you're a failure. And when working with people who are really high performers, high achievers, using that to their advantage, because it seems like that would be a detriment because you would be way more likely to get sucked into wellness culture. And like, yes, I can just, what's that mushroom coffee called? Chaga? Like, it's like a mushroom tea that's supposed to be like coffee. Let's just pretend it's chaga. So I'm sure somebody somebody will let us know if it's not right. Like, oh, okay, I'm exhausted. And I'm this, I'm that, and my period's gone and my skin is really bad. I just need to include more mushroom dust in my coffee. And then that's going to supposed to fix it. Many people and high achievers are probably more likely than not to get pulled down that rabbit hole of wellness of like, I'm not going to pay attention to the fact that I'm actually doing things to ruin my body that I think are healthy 
but I'm going to try to like multivitamin my way out of it. I'm going to try to fast out of it. I'm going to try to paleo out of it. I'm going to try to micro, you know, I'm going to try to supplement out of it, but flipping that and once flipping kind of reversing that and using their drive to succeed as a boon. When I work with them, if you're so high performing and driven, this is what you need to do to fix your body. Applying that mentality to resting and fueling and doing these things that you're supposed to do and being consistent with meditation and being consistent with fueling yourself and being consistent with sleep. You can channel that high performer and try to make it so that the 4 a.m. bedtime militant wake up turns into like a 9.30 p.m. militant bedtime. And it takes work, but it sounds like it's all doom and gloom for high achievers because they're so much more, I would say, susceptible to this culture. But you can look at it as, okay, let's just use your high achievement for good. Like, let's use your task orientation, but let's just change the tasks and basically make them the opposite of what they were. It can be a real boon for people who are driven and high achievers and high performers. I see myself in so much around the, you know, if there's one thing I can do to to feel better, I need to do a hundred things to feel better and I need to do them every day. And the folks participating in, in my well-being challenge right now have kind of heard me say, it isn't really about doing all 30 things every single day. It's about picking you know, one or two things that you can do consistently to support the body that you were given to allow it space to recover and restore and even engage its incredible innate healing capacities. But I also see myself in the just give me a checklist and an accountability coach and I can, you know, show up with the best of them. As we're wrapping up, I asked you to send me some of your favorite resources, which I will include in the podcast transcript, but are there any specific ones that you wanted to kind of call out for the listeners right now? I read books on this subject and consume podcasts on this subject with at, at a mind-numbing pace as high functioners are want to do. I think the ones that I sent you are all, they're all books that personally spoke to me and they really talk about breaking down diet culture. And even if don't kind of like we talked about with kids, even if you don't have the words to help them fix something, you can at least make them aware of something. And all of the books and podcasts that I sent to you will help your listeners. If they do look into any of them, they will help them question, what am I really participating in? And how does diet culture and fat phobia show up in my life? at least be aware of it. And because you can't fix it if you're not aware of it. And so I think focusing on awareness is key. And I mean, I could have given you a hundred other resources of where to go once you realize there's an issue and think, oh my gosh, I really need to work on eating intuitively. Well, there are tons of resources for that. Or I need to work on, I need to work on my mindset or I need to work on taking my workouts and not being so militant with my workouts. Like there are lots of different ways you could go with that. But I think all of these resources that I listed are really good for at least helping you recognize that there may be an issue and that the things that you always believed are true 
not all of them, but I mean, it's so boring, but fruits and vegetables are still really good for your health. (laughs) The problem is when you only eat fruits and vegetables, there are so many things that we've been taught and led to believe are in our control are not. And so many things we've been led to believe are really important for our health are actually not, and maybe detrimental to our health. The things that we've been taught, we should teach our kids um, the way we should talk to our kids often are not helpful. Nobody is doing this intentionally. And that's one thing that I talk to when I talk to parents all the time. I say every mistake that you have made, I have made it too. I have said things that now it sounds like nails on a chalkboard. I have been there. I have had to do that work too. And I have had to realize, wait a minute, wait a minute, wait a minute. I thought I was doing my best and I actually ended up making things worse. And it's never too late to like get back on that highway that's going to take you to where you need to go that's the healthiest for you. You can always get back on that highway. And that's something that has guided me throughout as I try to do better and as I make mistakes, knowing that you can always backtrack. And especially when it has to do with, you know, kind of use a car metaphor, you can always back up and get back on the right path. But especially, you know, when I talk to parents, sometimes they think this is, I have messed my child up so much. And I just have so much compassion because I have felt that. And I will say that one of the biggest gifts you can give your children, if all of this diet culture and fat phobia stuff rings true for you as a parent, and you realize that you have some changes to make if you want to change how your child grows up, is that they will see you be vulnerable. And I'm, I'm raising a little empath. So it's actually, it's been especially beneficial in our home. But when they see you saying something like, you know, I used to believe this, this just isn't the best for us anymore. And we're going to make some changes around here and I'm going to do things differently. And I think it's going to get better. And then I feel like that, if you're a high achiever, especially knowing that your uh, household probably achievement threshold and standard is probably pretty high knowing that it's okay to mess up. And that I feel like takes everything full circle because our bodies are not meant to be on these really strict binary, like black and white diets. Right. So kind of what I mentioned earlier about how once you start eating intuitively, you kind of start living intuitively. And I would say that you kind of start parenting intuitively too. And that's been a gift that this whole process has given me is that whatever mistake I have made, whether that's blundering through discussing something in the news and trying to make it not too young, but like just perfect for that nine-year-old explanation, or talking about how, why one of her teachers said sugar is bad, you know, and then having just light dinner conversation, you know, if I don't get it right, I know that I can go back and again, say that I made a mistake. Let me kind of redo this. And I feel like your kids then learn that they get redos and that they don't have to be perfect. And I think as, especially as that's a good reminder to all of us who are really high performing, high drive, that you can see kind of taking the pressure down and you can see redos in action. I don't know if that's going to ring true for the entire audience, but I think that's been one of the biggest gifts that I've had as a parent going through this, which is not easy. It's not easy to dismantle fat phobia and for you. And then it's like, as you're doing it for yourself, you're then doing it in your own home for your own child. It can seem overwhelming, but I think that's something that has been a gift is that it gives your child the opportunity to see vulnerability and know that, oh, vulnerability is okay. It's okay to make mistakes and redo. And that's okay. And I think that's a, I think that's a beautiful 
sentiment for any child to learn. Yeah. And that's a powerful lesson for a lot of adults to learn as well, that we can make mistakes and the overwhelming majority of them are not, not fatal. Yes. (laughs) I love all of that. One of the things that I wanted to just circle back as a one more plug and gentle reminder for all of us is that our body is not actually our enemy, even though for many different reasons, we may have been taught or conditioned that our body is the problem. Yes. For me as a high performer, I just thought my body was supposed to do what I wanted it to do, regardless of whether I was actually listening to it or paying attention or giving it what it needed. And one of the critical pieces of my journey, and, and when you talked about the resources I was thinking about, there's so much power in when we just begin to notice our own thoughts and beliefs around something. And I think even since you and I have started to talk, I have become more aware of my own thoughts and observations and just watching my brain do what it does around the topics that we've talked about today. And awareness is that first step. And then it's like, okay, so now that I see how my thought patterns may be fueling behaviors or fueling the way that I'm interacting with other people or my own children, how can I then start to reframe those? And returning to both ourselves and to our children with gentleness, kindness, vulnerability, and saying, I'm learning new things. And now that I know more, back to your quote, you know, when you know better, do better. And continuing to lay down new, those new ways of thinking about and approaching food or whatever the issue might be. Kate, thank you so much for coming on today. How can people find you? So I am by choice, not active on social media. <laughs> talk about, uh, talk about uh, doing things for your own mental health. Uh, have a website, katebrosnanrd.com. And that's basically just, it tells you what I do and it gives you a way to get, uh, get in touch with me. And there's a little button that can send an email to me if anybody has any questions or, or comments or anything. Well, I will include that website link in the transcript and I gold stars to you for opting out of social media for your own mental health. <laughs> Thank you all for listening today. And if you haven't already, I hope you'll go to wherever you listen to podcasts and rate and subscribe. Whenever you subscribe and rate, you make it easier for other people to find this content. And I look forward to being back with you next time. <laughs>